I had to come back to underground nuclear testing this week. We looked at the topic briefly last episode, and I've since uncovered so much good stuff that here we are again. This week we ask how you conduct an underground nuclear test. I mean, what's the point of it? If the thing is underground, you don't get any great big flash and shockwave rushing out across the land. You don't get any fallout to measure, any massive mushroom cloud rising up into the heavens. So, what do you get with an underground test? And what happens when it all goes wrong? So let's look at underground nuclear tests. Firstly, how are they set up? Do you dig a hole in the desert, shout, Look out below! below. And drop a nuke into it? Well, firstly, we mustn't think of it as a nuke, as a bomb. Instead, let's go back to 1945 and call it a gadget. The nickname given to the very first Trinity nuclear test at Almogordo. So don't imagine that a bomb has been put underground, or at least don't picture it as a bomb. It's a gadget, a device, a thingamajig. Let me quote here from the brilliant Nevada test site oral history project. People think of an underground event as shooting a bomb. It's really not a bomb, it's just a massive physics experiment. Okay, well, how do you get your massive physics experiment underground? You call in some hardcore miners. In the case of Rainier, the first proper underground test, miners burrowed a long tunnel into the side of a mesa. A mesa being a hill or ridge with a big flat top. And they had to tunnel in for about 700 feet till they found themselves underneath the cap of the mesa. Now, having dug out a huge tunnel, do you just slap the gadget down in there at the end of a straight line? No. Anyone who's been in a large nuclear bunker might be familiar with a dogleg tunnel. Take the bunker at Anstruther, for example, or at Barnton Quarry. I've seen dog-like tunnels in both of these bunkers. You enter the bunkers via a long, sloping tunnel, at the foot of which is the blast door. But the door is round a corner. It's not simply waiting for you at the foot of the tunnel. You have to walk down, 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 and then turn a corner and there is your blast door. 
that so that if the blast does penetrate the tunnel, they won't just charge straight down and hammer into the blast door. The blast door is cleverly tucked around a corner where it will avoid the worst of the blast. Same concept here with the underground testing. The gadget, as we call it, is similarly tucked around a corner, although it's referred to here as a fishhook corner. By here, again, I'm referring to the Nevada Oral History Project, which has lots of um, witness testimony and memories from miners, engineers, geologists, scientists and locals who were there when it happened. So it's round a fishhook corner. So you tunnel, tunnel, tunnel into the mountain for 700 feet, tunnel, 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 and then twist round a little corner and there is where you plant your bomb. Sorry, your massive physics experiment. Same principle, though, as hiding your blast door around a corner in a bunker. Although in this case, it's doing the opposite of what your dogleg corner is doing in a bunker. In bunkers, they're designed to keep the worst of the blast wave out. In underground tests, they're working to keep the worst of it in. Here's another quote from the Nevada Project about the fishhook design. We designed the end of the tunnel to end in a fishhook configuration, such that when the explosion took place, the explosion itself would send a shockwave through the stone and collapse the tunnel ahead of the shockwave that would have to go around the corner, so to speak, to get out of the tunnel. As we discussed in last week's episode, often the underground tests would still manage to send some evidence up to the surface. Even though they're buried deep, deep underground, they can still sometimes manage to get through, sending up dust, piles of rubble, or visible evidence of a shockwave running across the land. So if the blast does manage to reach the surface, it will ripple through the ground, and that movement will dislodge earth, and often send violent clouds of dust and dirt flying. And if it's strong enough, it might result in a crater. Or it's opposite, a retark. Again, we discussed all that last week. So that's what's happening up on the surface. But underground, the device has gone off and sent its shockwave up and also into the fishhook tunnel. But let's forget the surface and let's forget the tunnel. What's actually happening at the moment of detonation in the so-called cavity in the hollow which has been dug out to accommodate the massive physics experiment. What's happening at ground zero? Here's another quote from the Nevada Project. The underground tests, because they were contained, all you really felt was the earth tremor, the seismic effect. Now, at Rainier, which was underground, the overburden, I believe, was about 700 feet above the cavern. When it went, what happened? It was in volcanic tuff. And volcanic tuff is a silicon material. So when it went off, the heat caused that silicon material to become glass. And it formed a huge glass bubble 
The support for that glass bubble was the pressure within this hollow ball of glass. But as it cooled, the pressure reduced to the point that the pressure could no longer support the overburden. When that happened, it collapsed and formed a chimney effect. Overburden uh, simply refers to the, the ground, the rubble, the stone that's above the incident, above the bomb in this case. So your, your device, your massive physics experiment, when it explodes, it's creating a huge hollow ball of glass underground. And when the hollow ball of glass cools and the pressure dissipates, your hollow ball of glass collapses and forms a chimney effect. Now, we briefly mentioned the chimney effect last week, so let's just recap on that with help from the website nuclearweaponarchive.org. We heard a moment ago that the explosion creates a glass bubble. What was... Wait a minute, what? (laughs) Hang on, a glass bubble? I'm picturing it like a delicate glass bubble hanging on a Christmas tree. Perhaps with a little reindeer spray-painted on it. It probably doesn't look like that. Let's see what Nuclear Weapon Archive can tell us. Here's their explanation of how glass bubbles are created by underground tests and how glass bubbles lead to chimneys. Okay, I've um, paraphrased the material on the website. It's quite scientific and that is not my area at all. So I had to read it about seven times. And now I've paraphrased it into, I hope, is more accessible language. When the gadget explodes, it creates a spherical cavity in the rock. Perfectly spherical because the blast wave is rushing out. The site refers to this as the snowplow effect. Simply the blast wave is moving outward and pushing the rock before it. Okay, so we are left with a nice spherical cavity in the rock. One millisecond after the blast, after the snow ploughing, the growth of the cavity and the rush of the blast wave become, as the site explains, decouples. In my paraphrasing, they are no longer buddies, I suppose. The blast wave rushes on without it. Although the cavity still keeps expanding for a moment, just not at the rate of the blast wave any longer. Blast wave has gone on without him. No longer buds. Inside the cavity, the rock is melting. Much of it has been vaporised, but much, much more is simply melting. And so, to quote from the site, the cavity is lined with molten rock. So you have your nice, perfectly symmetrical sphere or globe in the rock and it begins to gather a pool of molten rock at the bottom, lying there like the dregs of a cup of tea, I suppose. But now your molten pool of rock is starting to cool. And here I'll quote from the Nuclear Weapon Archive. Over the seconds and minutes following the explosion... The molten rock drips down to form a layer on the bottom of the cavity, while continued cooling causes the pressure inside the cavity to drop below that of the lithostatic stress in the surrounding rock. 
allowing the ceiling of the cavity to begin to collapse. Okay, uh, still with me? Our nice big sphere in the rock is starting to give way. As the rock falls in, so it collapses upwards, I suppose. Is that the best way of describing it? It begins to crumble and collapse upwards. As more rock falls in, it pulls down more with it, and more falls in. It's, if I'm understanding this properly, it's tunnelling its way upwards, eating its way up through the rock, pulling more rock down into our nice hollow. So our hollow sphere is gouging and chomping and creating a column up through the earth. Or, as it's described here, a chimney. The site describes it as a cylindrical chimney filled with rubble. Okay, so our hollow, our bubble, is no longer hollow. It is gradually filling up. It was initially filled with a pool of molten rock, but now it is crumbling the hard rock above it and it's falling into the cavity. So we have a cylindrical chimney filled with rubble and it eats its way upwards. And if it eats its way upwards sufficiently, the ground above falls in towards it. It subsides and we get our crater. Okay, got it. I think. One last word about chimneys. The site tells us that underground tests were often designed so that a big deep chimney of rubble would be created. They wanted a chimney to be created because this column of rubble would act as a cap or plug to keep the radioactive material underground. So that's what happens, roughly, (laughs) during an underground test. But how do scientists get information from this? You don't have the spectacle of the flash and the mushroom cloud and the huge blast wave rushing across the, the ground. So what do they get from an underground test? Well, they can get seismic data. There are plenty of scientific instruments um, embedded in the walls of the surrounding rock or connected to Ground Zero via cables, which snake back out. And afterwards, they can also drill down into the earth and extract samples of radioactive rock. These are then taken to a lab and melted down. Yes, that's right, they are melting radioactive rock. There were even tests where high-speed cameras were installed to capture the moment of detonation. Of course, the cameras were destroyed, but all they had to do was survive for microseconds, just enough to capture the blast. And then afterwards, okay, they're destroyed, but they've served their purpose. They survived and sent back a photo for that microsecond. Now, you might think that an underground test is relatively safe. I mean, that was the whole point um, of the Partial Test Ban Treaty. Tests in the atmosphere or underwater were throwing far too much fallout up and out and onto us. They were put underground because it was safer. And come on, look at America. At the Nevada test site, the nuclear explosions are buried under 
all the hard, unforgiving rock of the Nevada desert. But it seems you can't always keep those nuclear monsters hidden. So what happens when an underground test goes wrong? The sedan test took place in Nevada. It's worth noting that the sedan test wasn't for military purposes. Instead, the test was part of a series, Operation Plowshare, which would test nukes to see what uses they might have for mining and cratering and excavation. You know, instead of having hundreds of miners break their backs on these projects, why not just drop a nuke or two and get yourself a nice big hole? So they were looking at whether nukes could be used in excavating earth for things like harbours, canals and dams. So here comes the sedan test. There was no tunnel built for sedan. It was intended to be a shallow test. So they simply drilled a hole down into the desert and lowered the device in. It went down about 636 feet. And when it detonated, it vented, meaning it got exposed to the air above. It got out. It got loose. The explosion threw the earth, which had been packed in above it, up in a huge mound. Then a massive dust cloud arose. Dust, of course, from all that earth being violently dislodged. One witness, a geologist who was at the site, said the dust cloud was probably 10 or 12 miles high. And Sedan left a hell of a crater. It's 330 feet deep and 1,280 feet across. So Sedan gave us a massive crater. Actually, the crater is the largest human-made crater in the United States and is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So Sudan gave us that huge crater and it gave us towering dust clouds and yes, it also released fallout, which is the very thing underground tests are supposed to suppress. The Sudan fallout contaminated more Americans than any other nuclear test. Here is a witness telling us how he saw the Sudan fallout descending like snow. Again, this quote is taken from the University of Nevada's Oral History Project. Uh, This witness wasn't uh, a worker at the site. He was the child of a rancher nearby. Back then, I was probably scared shitless. Now I'm just mad beyond belief. Or, uh, I don't know how you can say it, but all I can remember is, as a little kid, I can remember people coming around and they made us wear these badges that I didn't know what it was for. I didn't understand how something you couldn't see could hurt you. But then, when they shot the sedan crater off and it looked like it was snowing here. I mean, it looked like it was going to put down two inches of snow. I remember that well. That really... I think I had nightmares. And everything after that, because that kind of brought it home. Before, you couldn't see it, so I didn't understand how. But then, you know, you got this ash and dust sitting up here, stabbing you. The interviewer then asks him, 
Who told you not to get it on you? Well, my dad and mother wouldn't let us go outside. I think it was three or four days they didn't let us go out. And then, whoever the first people were who came around here, and I don't remember faces and names, I remember they came and took our milk cows because they wanted to test the iodine and the strontium-90, which gets in the milk first thing and all that whole baloney. And I remember my dad just being livid because he didn't think they knew any more than we did about what the hell they were doing. He knew that they were being so secretive and so stupid about it that it could only mean something bad. Well, there we are. Who knew holes in the ground could be so interesting? Thanks goes to my podcast patron, Tom Allen, for requesting this topic. That's a benefit open to some of my patrons. You can request a nuclear topic and I will cover it for you in the podcast. So thank you, Tom. And if you'd like to become a patron, it means you can donate some cash to the podcast each month. You choose which amount and you get various Atomic Hobo rewards in exchange for your support. Please look at my site, patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. This week I welcome my first patrons of 2021, so thank you to Ashlyn, Adam Mason, Hannah Lacken, and last night we got a new patron, KJWX. Thanks also to Debbie, who increased her monthly donation. Another new patron is Darman Richter. Darman has just released a book about his travels to Chernobyl, which is full of photographs. We'll have Darman on the podcast soon to tell us about it. Uh, it would have happened sooner if I had been more capable and organised, but I'm a big idiot. So check out Darman Richter's book, Chernobyl, published by Fuel. Uh, listeners to this podcast might uh, know Fuel already. They also published the brilliant uh, Soviet bus stops books. Remember you can find me on Facebook under Nuclear Britain, or on Twitter under Julie A. McDowell. And I thank you all for listening, and I'll be back next Monday.